Buchem Aboyim to the seventh in the continuing series of lectures on Rabbi Soloveitchik's emergence of ethical man. Last week we spoke about Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation of the Bible of the Chumash and man as having reached what you would call the crescendo of ethical development with the creation of Chava, of woman, then man achieves what's called, what Rabbi Salavasia calls, an I-Thou relationship, and in so doing, that therefore man's ethical development reaches what appears to be a final, at least a completed stage. Of course, after the Chumash speaks about the creation of Chava, then the Chumash goes on to tell us about what is called the Chait of Adam Arisha, the sin of Adam. And in the sin of Adam, of eating from the Eitzadas, from the, what Rabbi Soloveitchik calls the tree of knowledge, then in fact, we introduce a entirely new ethical dimension into man. But we we're we speaking about the ethical dimension of man, we're gonna actually speak about what we might call the anti-ethical dimension in man, namely what Rabbi Soloveitchik calls the emergence of sin. And this is the discussion in chapter six, of Emergence of Ethical Man on page 95, which is entitled The Tree of Knowledge and the Emergence of Sin. Rabbi Soloveitchik um, speaks about the personality of the Nachash, of the serpent. And Rabbi Soloveitchik says that the personality of the serpent, he calls it what you would call demonic. And the demonic personality of the serpent in fact is going to um, express itself in actually a change in man's personality himself. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchik notes that um, that um, when, we, when, when the Torah quotes the Nachash speaking, it uses the word Elohim as opposed to Havaya Elohim. Um, in addition, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, on page 98, the conclusion is unequivocal. The serpent wanted to reduce both God and man to the status of beings endowed with highly developed mechanical intelligences and locked in competitive struggle. The experience of God, according to the serpent, is demonic, uncanny, and weird. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik's language. Now, um, the next sentence, which follows, there is clearly a mistake in the text. The text should read, man should not only feel God, but should shudder or feel horror before him. Meaning that the serpent's demonic character, according to Rasulavechik, changes the relationship between man and God. And in fact is, man now is actually involved in a struggle in order, um, in order to fight God who tries to control man. And this in fact actually is the changing relationship between man and God, as opposed to the I-Thou relationship that had been achieved previous to this. Nonetheless, man and God are locked in a struggle in which God is um, pictured by the serpent as being a being who is only interested in self-fulfillment and pleasure and in control, and man is locked in a struggle against God in order to withstand 
this control. And that's what Rabbi Soloveitchik's basic point is. Now, the fact is, is that um, simultaneous to this, or parallel to this, there's actually a new, um, there is actually a new, um, we say a new dimension of man. Up till now, for example, Rabbi Soloveitchik distinguishes between what we would call biological sex and what he calls erotic sex, erotic love. And erotic love, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, basically is not a love, a relationship with a woman in which one wishes to establish an ethical relationship of I and thou, but rather it's a relationship in which a person uses his mate as a object in order to achieve pleasure or to achieve domination. In other words, there's the conversion of an I-thou relationship into what he calls on page 107 an I-it relationship. And then, Bishalavechik goes on and speaks about aesthetics. This is what's called an aesthetic drive in man. And the aesthetic drive in man is actually a drive in man, which is actually a drive um, for either pleasure as its own end, or a drive which looks for domination. So, in other words, what happens is, as a result of eating from the Eitzadas, the, um, the demonic personality of the serpent somehow gets transferred to man, and now all of a sudden man's lusts are not only purely physical lusts, or biological lusts, I should say, but rather there's what's called an aesthetic lust, an aesthetic um, desire, and the purpose of the aesthetic desire is actually either for pleasure itself, not for any um, practical biological need, which was the case of Adam one, or actually a drive for domination. You know what the Vesalovagic places um, pleasure and domination as part and parcel of the same drive, which represents a new concept of evil, which is produced as a result of the Chait Adam Arishan. Now, Vesalovagic in this chapter, speaks at length about what's called aesthetics, or the aesthetic experience. And he describes the aesthetic experience as an experience which is basically an experience of what he calls pleasure and enjoyment. Now, what's very, very interesting is that in chapter 6, Rabbi Soloveitchik actually brings several sources, which we would call philosophies of aesthetics, which actually reduce aesthetics to a form of pleasure. For example, on page 109, he quotes the philosopher George Santayana, right, from his book, The Sense of Beauty Being the Outlines of Aesthetic Beauty, where, in fact, Santayana defines beauty as, quote-unquote, pleasure objectified. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik quoting Santayana. In addition to um, Rabbi Soloveitchik on page 207, in a footnote, actually, in fact, actually in the text itself in 110, also in a footnote, number 10 footnote, actually quotes Nietzsche as speaking about what's called a orgiastic, um, um, an orgiastic um, drive. And this comes from what, he, what Nietzsche held to be a Dionysian drive, which in, with which he actually um, interpreted Greek tragedy and Greek plays. In addition, on page 111, Rabbi um, Soloveitchik quotes from Henry Bergson's um, Time and Free Will and Essay on the Immediate Doubt of Consciousness and speaks about also pleasure as being a type of agreeableness 
right, to aesthetics. And there he quotes Bergson himself. And finally, as another source, he actually quotes a point made by Kant in the Critique of Practical Reason, in which Kant actually um, gives a marshal, gives a metaphor about a person, right, who is digging for gold in order to spend money. Now, many years ago, many years ago, I came across a book by a very, very famous philosopher, Ernst Kassirer, who was actually a student of Hermann Cohen, who, as we know, Rosanovechik, not only quotes, but actually he terms as the greatest of Jewish, modern Jewish philosophers. And Kassirer wrote a book that was published in 19, um, actually says, it was completed in 1944. And the book, it's a short book, um, and it's entitled An Essay on Man, An Introduction to a Philosophy of Human Culture by Ernst Kassirer, who I think at the time of the book was actually teaching at, um, at Columbia University. Kassirer, as some of you well know, is the, probably most famous for a multi-volume work called A Theory of Symbolic Forms. As I mentioned before, he was a Talmud Muvak. He was actually a student, one of the great students of, um, of, um, of Herman Cohen. In addition, he's also probably remembered for a very famous series of debates he had with Heidegger in Davos, D-A-V-O-S. And that debate, it was very, very central in, um, I would say, probably a lot of what Kassila did later on in his life was basically, as many people believe, was to fight this type of Heideggerian nihilism and to champion the concept of human logic and human thinking. Now, what's interesting is, is that when I was working on the lectures, I'm called the Hamnik lectures, I noticed that many of the, um, the um, works and philosophies and philosophers are sort of brought, especially when he was speaking about aesthetics, what actually happened to have been mentioned in Kassila in his essay on man. Um, in the section which he speaks about art, that actually section, um, the section on art, actually, I'm actually, I have the book in front of me, but I think there's not a single page that's intact. But the section on art actually begins on page 176. Um, now, it's interesting to note that Kassira's book is an essay on man. So the, the original title of this, these notes was A Concept of Man. I think the book that was published was entitled The Emergence of Ethical Man, but in fact, actually, I think the, on the notes from Rasanovechik had written The Concept of Man. Now, it turns out that the four quotes that um, I've just mentioned in Rabbi Soloveitchik, these exact quotes are in fact quoted in Kassila's book. So for example, the, um, the quote of Santayana, the quote of Santayana, that beauty is pleasure objectified, this appeared, appears actually in Kassila's book too. Um, Kassila writes, according to Santayana, right, beauty is pleasure regarded as the quality of things. It is pleasure objectified. So Santayana, in fact, actually makes the same quote. The same quote from Soloveitchik is actually quoted by Santayana. In addition, the, um, the, um, 
the the the, the reference to Nietzsche, of course, to um, to the orgiistic drive, is actually um, a direct quote from from Kassira. Kassira also speaks about Nietzsche's um, understanding of the Apollonian, not the Apollonian, the Dionysian element as being a orgiistic drive. That's in um, Kassira on page two hundred seven. The quote from Bergson is essay on the immediate data of consciousness actually um, is quoted in Kassira on page 205. Kassira actually quotes the same thing that Rabbi Soloveitchik quotes to, quotes here in The Emergence of Ethical Man. And what's more amazing is the exact quote of the metaphor of Kant about a person who digs for gold to spend money, word for word, that is also quoted in Kassira on page 203. Very interesting, of all the, all the many works of Kant, of Soloveitchik comes out to quote the exact same lines that Kassira, in fact, actually quotes in his book too. Which leads me, I'm going to actually put forth a speculation, right? I'm leaving it to the, the scholars of intellectual history to actually further examine it. I will later um, give you some clues as how to actually pursue this, whether it's true or not. I want to claim that it is clear to me that Rabbi Soloveitchik read Kassira's book, An Essay on Man, and Rabbi Soloveitchik, in my opinion, wanted to write a book which would prevent, which present Kassira's hypotheses and conclusions from an orthodox Jewish point of view and called it the concept of man. That's what I want to propose. Now, I might be right, I might not be right. The fact is, is that Kassira's book came out in 1944. The lecture notes that I was given, which seemed to be the basis of the emergence of ethical man, are in the late 40s. So actually the time is, is, timing is exactly right. Um, probably the way of proving whether this is more than a conjecture, in my opinion, this is clear that I'm right, but for those of you who want you know, much more scholarly objective evidence, um, it seems to me, and this is a suggestion of my former Talmud, Professor Eddie Breuer from Hebrew University, that it might be interesting if any of you know where Rabbi Soloveitchik's personal library is, you might want to get permission to go in there, see if he has Kassira's book, and even more so, maybe look and see if some of these things are underlined, if they're underlined, Maybe, I won't say QED, but I think the matter is definitely closed. Now, if we try to understand what Kassira is doing, on the basis of this, I think we'll be able to understand really what Rabbi Soloveitchik is doing. Now, what is Kassira doing? Kassira, in his section on art, which begins on page 176, he presents what he calls theories of art. What is art? And there are many types of theories of art. Is art, in fact, an imitation of reality? Or is art an expression of the subjective? It goes through a history. Kassira, who was this incredible polymath, right? Goes through a history of the theories of art. Now, on page 202, Kassira speaks about the psychological theories of art. Says Kassira, and I'm quoting Kassira, the psychological theories of art have a clear and palpable advantage over all the medical theories. They are not obliged to give a general theory of beauty. Right? 
What they do, they limit themselves to a narrow compass for they're concerned only with the fact of beauty and with the descriptive analysis of this fact. The first task of psychological analysis is to determine the class of phenomena to which our experience of beauty belongs to. And this turns out to be pleasure. In other words, the theories of psychology, the psychological theories of art, basically understand that aesthetics and art is really just man's seeking of pleasure. And um, Casilla lists as these theoreticians, as these philosophers of the psychology of art, psychological theories of art, none other than the ones that are such Soloveitchik lists. He lists Antayana, he lists Nietzsche, he lists Bergson, and he lists Kant. So, now, what's Casilla's point? What's Casilla's point? Casilla actually rejects psychological theories of art. Okay? At the very, very end, right? He, um, I'm going to go at the very, very end. Um, um, he says, on page 213, he says, every work of art has an intuitive structure, that means a character of rationality. And then, basically, um, he actually compares art to science. Right? On page 215 he says, and only by conceiving art in a special direction, in the orientation of our thoughts, our imagination, our feelings, can we comprehend its true meaning and function. He says, there is a conceptual depth. I'm reading from Casilla on page 215. There is a conceptual depth as well as a purely visual depth. The first is discovered as a conceptual depth and a visual depth. The first is discovered by science. The second is revealed in art. The first aids us in understanding the reasons of things. The second in seeing their forms. In science, we try to trace phenomena back to the first causes and to general laws and principles. In art, we absorbed in their immediate appearance, and we enjoy this appearance to the full extent in all its richness and variety. The two views of truth, I'm now on page 216 in Casilla, the two views of truth are in contrast with one another, but not in conflict or contradiction. Since art and science move in totally different phases, they cannot contradict or thwart one another. And finally, he says, at the very, very end of the section of art, on the end of page 216 going to 217, art gives us a richer, more vivid, and colorful image of reality and a more profound insight into its formal structure. It is characteristic of the nature of man that he is not limited to one specific and single approach to reality, as opposed to science, which looks for a law of nature which doesn't change. But one can choose his point of view and so pass from one aspect of things to another. In other words, rationally, basically, literature versus Hasidus. In other words, in any case, Kisila understands that art is not different than science, it's a different perspective on the world. But the rationale, the logic, and the, um, the, um, the, um, the process of doing science, right, as enriching us and as learning about the world, is also part of the process of doing art. Which means what Casilla is doing is he's rejecting the fact that art reduces to psychological theories, but rather art is also a means in which man looks to understand the world, but to understand the world in a different way that he understands it through science. Um, what I understand in Casilla's section here is very simply that Casilla is doing here in art what he does in all aspects of culture in this essay on man, is that what he's claiming is, is that culture is not this irrational process which just seeks to serve man's pleasure and basically reduces to nothing of any importance or of logical or meaningful content but pure nihilism. 
But rather, Kasir understands that human culture actually thought and logic and process and discovery is part and parcel to human culture. And that was really Kasir's, you know, book, uh, Magnus Open, the theory of symbolic forms. That through symbolic forms, man uses abstractions in order to understand the world and therefore advances culture, right? This is Kasira in contradiction to the nihilist Heidegger, who saw absolutely no ethical content to man whatsoever, just man's sort of like bland existence and his existential crisis and his perhaps fear of death. So this is Kasira. My hypothesis, actually my thesis is, is that Rabbi Soloveitchik was actually championing a very similar course to Kasira, and that makes sense, right? Because actually at the end of the Hamidic lectures, Rabbi Soloveitchik faked a very, very strong and final swipe at Heidegger. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik, though, instead of understanding in the emergence of ethical man, or what was originally entitled the concept of man, Rabbi Soloveitchik understood that the central idea of man was not, at least in these lectures, not thought and logic, but rather ethics. So in other words, for Rabbi Soloveitchik, right, Judaism, as we've spoken about in previous lectures, Judaism is coming to teach the world ethics. In other words, the main message of the Chumash, as opposed to science, is in fact ethics. Science is discovered by man, ethics is revealed by, by God to man. So now, if that's true, what is Rabbi Soloveitchik actually interprets the chait of Adabarishan, the sin of the tree of knowledge, as being very similar to what you would call a psychological theory of art, of aesthetics. That basically the nachash, the serpent, instills within man or brings to man a dimension where man is driven by what Rabbi Soloveitchik calls orgiastic, right, and pleasure and domineering, right, um, agenda, right, which in fact actually is the source of evil. The emergence of evil is basically the psychological, aesthetic drive in man. That was why Soloveitchik takes the psychological theories and gives it an ethical twist. In other words, psychological theories of art, when they're given an ethical twist, becomes evil, ethical evil. Right? Evil and ethics. That is, was the consequence of the chait of Odomarisha. Literally enough, this, that's how Rosadjur understood it. Now, what does this have to say about Rabbi Soloveitchik's thought in general? We spoke about the centrality of ethics here. What's interesting is, is that what is it, what is the chiddush here? What is new here? I mean, we all understood, the most Mephoshim commentaries understand then the Chet of Adam Arishan introduces the concept of what you call the Yetzirah, of Taiva, of man's um, pleasure. What is new? What is the Chiddush? What is the novel element of Rabbi Soloveitchik? So I want to claim is that the traditional concepts of the Chet of Adam Arishan, the sin of Adam and eating from the tree of knowledge, the traditional understanding is that man now becomes subject to his evil inclination, to pleasure. And therefore, the purpose of the Torah, the purpose of the revelation of God's law, is that man should somehow overcome, right, his Yetzirah, his evil inclination. 
Right? So in other words, basically, the standpoint or the viewpoint of most traditional commentators is that the mitzvahs are coming to basically um, help man overcome his evil temptation. In other words, temptation is something which is evil, and come the mitzvahs, and they come to overcome my temptation. <coughs> the fact is that this is not something that we would expect that Rabbi Salavechik would feel so easy with, because Rabbi Salavechik in the emergence of ethical man understands that man is very, very much a physical human being. And if that's true, then pleasure, right, then pleasure itself, right, shouldn't be something which is evil. On the contrary, pleasure is part of being a human being. What, what do I have to, you know, why, why should pleasure be a, an evil thing? Christianity, Rabbi Salavechik has already told us, comes to look as pleasure, as physical as being something which is evil. But Judaism understands pleasure, right, as a part of the very natural biological, you know, essence of who man is. So it turns out that Rabbi Soloveitchik introduces a second type of a drive, just like we spoke about a second ordered will. So you have a second type of a pleasure drive. Rabbi Soloveitchik says on page 125, the orgiistic enjoyment is rebellious, anti-authoritarian. The demonic personality wants to play. It matters not with what. It wants to find out in something. It matters not via what medium. It rejects authority. It frowns upon all injunctions. The aesthetic appetite is stimulated by a balanced fantasy. Basically, the concept of the orgiistic enjoyment, which Rasulavechik is defining as the chief consequence of the chet of the sin of man from eating from the tree of knowledge, is that man rebels. It's rebellion. It's anti-authoritarian. Which means that Rabbi Soloveitchik now has placed it on a different level than the traditional commentators. Man rebels for the sake of rebellion. The concept of the God of the Kodesh Baruch, which Anach has portrayed, is God wants to control man. God, right? Like I'm quoting from Soloveitchik on page 125, right? Elohim for the serpent is representative of an aestheticist God. God is also into aesthetics who created the world in order to enjoy it afterwards. He enjoys the creation by enslaving and dominating it. The dynamic God is both powerful and orgiastic, a Nietzschean God. Man, therefore, becomes a Nietzschean human being and looks to rebel against God. Which means, for Rezolovechik, the essence of Eitzadas, the essence of the Chait of Adavarishin, the sin of man, even for the tree of knowledge, is that man becomes rebellious and anti-authoritarian. But the fact is that you're rebellion against God. The flip side, of course, is that man is a free human being. That's the flip side. However, man's rebellion should not be a rebellion against God, but a rebellion against human society, which, opens us, which leads us to the open morality of Bergson. And that's how Rabbi Soloveitchik begins the section of what he calls the charismatic personality. The charismatic personality, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, I'm quoting on page 150, must disassociate himself from his national connections and free himself from the environment he was born and reared in. The chosen person severs his affiliation with the clan and friends. He deserts everybody in order to give himself up to his new friend, God. In other words, Rabbi Soloveitchik now has proposed that the ethic, the Musa, of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, is freedom. The flip side, the evil side, 
is freedom that man rebels against God. The good side, the ethical side, is man rebels against society, against his environment. That's called open morality, according to Bergson. And by rebelling in society, one establishes a relationship with the Kaddish Bokhu. It's a relationship that comes from freedom. Very, very interesting. So, in other words, Rabbi Soloveitchik, in a certain sense, has ushered in a revolution in what we call the Musa of the Torah, the Musa of Judaism. The Musa of Judaism is not for man to overcome, overwhelm, or transcend the Yetzirah, but the Musa of Judaism is freedom. Evil for Judaism is the misuse of freedom by rebelling against God. What's Musa for the Torah? The purpose of Judaism is to teach man to be charismatic, namely to rebel against a society or an environment or a culture which enslaves him, to rebel against it, and only by then, through a virtue of the freedom which man acquires to reestablish a new relationship with his new friend who's God. This is in fact actually, in my opinion, the probably most important chiddish, the probably important you know, philosophic innovation of Rosalovechik's book. And I said before, my thesis is Rosalovechik is basically in his original concept of man, is rewriting in Jewish ethical terms um, Kassira's famous book, small essay called An Essay on Man. That is my, um, my scholarly proposal for today. Now, it's very, very interesting. Last time, or maybe two times ago, I quoted Rav Cook. And I noted that Rav Cook also makes very, very much use of um, the notion of the creativity, the Ilan Vital, that's inherent within nature. Right? And this concept of imminence, biological imminence, is a theme in Rav Kook as well as Rabbi Soloveitchik. Of course, they, the Nusach, the way they express it, is much different, but the theme is the same. Well, you should know that Rabbi Kook also speaks very much about freedom. There are several places in the Shemona Kavats, I'm not going to read from it now, because this would actually entail a new series of lectures on Ashkafrozakal.com, but um, Rav Kook actually speaks about that all of nature basically crescends, reaches a crescendo in man's freedom. And it's very, very important man's freedom not be fettered by the chains of common consensus. Not even, of course, says by, I don't want to say it, even by what's called flukkite, yirashamayim. In other words, of Cook understands that the most absolute notion of freedom is in fact, the notion in Judaism, value in Judaism, is actually man's unfettered freedom. And somehow through man's unfettered freedom, that's how actually man evolves, right? Evolves spiritually, right? And actually ascends towards, in spirituality, towards the Kaddish Baruch, towards God. So in other words, actually, it's enough that, that this same theme too, which as you all know was a very important theme of the 20th century, right? Um, you know, finds its very, very central expression both in Rabbi Yoshabes and Rabbi and also Avram Zichakoyim Kok. Now, I want to um, make um, another point over here, which I think is also a very, very important um, to think important to think of too. Is that the 
the concept here of um, what he calls orgiistic enjoyment, the ascetic experience, right? Um, he speaks about um, he speaks about domination and he speaks about pleasure. And because of this, um, sort of H by speaking about domination, actually gives it a, in other words, he gives it what's called an ethical twist. In other words, if we speak about pleasure, so it reduces biologically. Once you speak about domination, it gives it a ethical twist, right? But of course, since by definition man is rebellious and anti-authoritarian, right? So therefore, the flip side, as I spoke before, is going to be a celebration of this basic nature. But a use of man's rebellionness as not a rebellion against God, but a rebellion against his, um, in other words, his cultural milieu or his social milieu, whatever that happens to be, in order to reforge relationship with the Kaddish Baruch It's very interesting is that, of course, we've spoken about the theme of evolution that constantly recurs in this work. In other words, most people tend to think of evolution as being something which basically imposes upon man a very, very strong scientific determinism. Rabbi um, Soloveitchik understands that, on the contrary, through evolution, man evolves ethics, and through evolution, in a certain sense, man evolves freedom. In other words, so Rabbi Soloveitchik, even though he clearly is accepting the notion of evolution, evolution for Soloveitchik, as it is, by the way, for Rav Kook, as I explained last week, is not something which is actually um, basically places its stamp on a scientific determination of mankind, but on the contrary, the proper way of looking at theories of evolution is to show, is to see how evolution provides a springboard for man's freedom. And because of that, that defines really what Rasulovitchkin appears to be the biblical ethic. The biblical ethic is freedom, which is the central theme of, man, of, of, of the natural world. So in other words, in a certain sense, Writing in a century where evolution becomes the natural scientific way of looking at the world. You know, people speak about they do I believe, don't believe in evolution. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, evolution is not like a theory. It's, it's a way of doing science. Every scientist looks at things from an evolutionary point of view. A doctor, everybody. I mean, evolution is not just a theory. It's like, it, you know, it's, it's almost as if, you know, people... Um, it's almost like having eyes, in other words, I mean, having, a, having a mind. In other words, evolution is the context by which all scientists and all fields study, um, study their subject matter. So, Aristotelic, what Aristotelic is doing is trying to understand, writing this in the context of the century of evolution, right, which was certainly the 19th and continues to be the 20th century, is that in fact, evolution, the way we're supposed to look at evolution, is not to accept the common interpretation of it as being something which imposes upon man a scientific determinism, but on the contrary, reveals to us the inherent forces of freedom which are vital for the evolutionary process itself. The very, very fact that evolution, right, is a theory which, according to theory, works, is a testament to the fact that nature is in fact has, is freedom is free has a content of freedom of create of creation, and this is the message which Rabbi Soloveitchik and both Rav Kook understood to be the gilu the revelation, right within nature of a Kodesh Baruch Hu through man's understanding of science. Okay, so 
This, in fact, um, ends um, chapter 6. Um, the chapter 7 is the next back chapter, and there Rabbi Soloveitchik actually continues um, on the concept here of fear, lying, and punishment. Um, but I think that, in fact, actually, um, we're actually going to skip that chapter. And I think that um, in line of what we spoke about today, in Mitzvah next time, we're going to actually go to chapter 8, which is an actually beginning part 3, the charismatic personality. And then actually we're going to encounter, really, Rabbi Soloveitch's understanding of what we call really some of the most fundamental beliefs in Judaism. And we can see how Rabbi Soloveitchik understands them in view and in the context of everything he's developed up to now in the book. Okay, anyway, from an undisclosed place in Yerushalayim and HaKadosh, till next week, be well. Kol Tov.